The Old Testament reading for the fourth Sunday after Epiphany comes from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God, God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, thing, to, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of 
The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> the text for the sermon today is taken from the epistle reading from Paul's words, where he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. They say, uh, you have probably said at some point, that... Uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I'm sure that that is literally true. Images can stick with us for a long time. They can stir up feelings and emotions, sometimes that we had forgotten or didn't even know were there. For example, it was 78 years ago this last Friday uh, the anniversary of the Red Army, the Soviets, liberating the concentration camp of Auschwitz. And I saw one photograph of some men standing there in their prison garb, and they were skeletons. It was amazing to think that they were even alive, able to walk around. The photographs that were taken told a story and maybe said more than a thousand words could have said. Another picture that came to mind was the picture of the Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima, one of the most famous photographs in the world probably. It's an iconic photograph and it brings to mind many, many words also. And both of these images are images of victory, the liberation of captives, the retaking of an island territory. And that started me thinking about another liberation through the cross, taking of territory, taking territory away from Satan. For 2,000 years, Christians have held dear that image, the image of the cross. It was an instrument of torture, an instrument of death. 
the means by which their leader, Jesus, was killed. And the Romans uh, perfected it. It had been around for, well, okay, it was around for about a thousand years. 600 years before Christ are the first um, records of crucifixion. But the Romans got hold of it and really perfected it. Used it for 400 years after Christ until Constantine, the Christian emperor, outlawed crucifixion as a means of death. Why would Christians adopt the cross as their symbol? Maybe it's because the image of the cross conveys so many words. For the Christian, the cross speaks an unmistakable message that God's Son came into the world to bear witness to the truth, not in judgment of the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And this, Paul says, is the hidden wisdom of God. The gospel message of the cross elicits very different responses from those who hear that message. Paul writes, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And later in that same reading, Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is the wisdom of God. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is, through the preaching of the cross, to save those who believe. The cross speaks thousands of words. It speaks of Christ Jesus, who was crucified to atone for the sins of the world, to bring pardon for our sins and salvation for all who would believe. It's a message that is foolish to those who are perishing, those who don't believe that God will judge the world, those who prefer human ideas over the truth of God's word. The cross is an image of love, love that would come into the world through the Son of God to destroy death's power over us, to decimate the works of the devil. The cross is the means through which the believer is gifted justification, righteousness, eternal life, all of which are ours only and in a crucified and risen Christ. And Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was a Roman city that um, prided itself in its sophistry, in its argumentative day. Not just that people would get together and fight, that's what we think of as an argument, but that they would make an argument, like a legal kind of argument. And the sophists in Corinth were wise and they were powerful. They were popular. They had their own following. Different people would want to listen to different 
sophists, different philosophers. And so they had their favorites. And the, the philosophers had their followings. They competed, in fact, for listeners. And it might be that influence in that culture, and maybe even creeping into the church, that prompted some of what Paul writes in this letter. Because the Corinthian congregation was divided into factions, you'll remember. Some who said they are following Paul, some follow Apollos, some Cephas, and others Christ. And in answer to this influence of these philosophers, Paul puts forward what seems very foolish. Paul preaches the cross and a crucified Savior. Foolishness to the world. And what about our day today? We certainly live in a post-Christian era. Many in society hold the Bible to be irrelevant and antiquated. Its teachings about creation and the fall into sin are rejected. And so the cross is foolishness. It doesn't stand up to the arguments, to the philosophies of men. They're blinded by their own arrogance. They see no beauty in the cross. But Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Some see the cross as foolish because they're blinded by their own wealth, their own popularity. They don't see a need for God. The world and the things of this life are what are in focus. It's what they have their hearts set on. And pride keeps them from humbling themselves at the foot of the cross. They don't feel their brokenness. They have no sorrow over their sin, nothing driving them to repentance or to seek forgiveness or restoration from God. Others see the cross as foolish because they love their own sin. They don't want to change. To accept the cross as real means to accept that their sin is real and evil and must be dealt with. The cross means guilt and shame and turning away from sin. And our flesh loves darkness. Our flesh excuses sin. I can't help it. I'm really not so bad. I'm really good at heart. I just make some mistakes here and there. Don't talk to me about needing to change. To some, the cross is foolishness because they've been misled and deceived by the sophists of our day, by the philosophers of our age, who in their great wisdom have led many to believe that there is no God outside of us, that everything living in this beautiful and extremely complex and delicately balanced world has come about by mere chance. Even churches and whole church bodies have been deceived by the sophists of these days so that they abandon the difficult truth, the difficult message of the cross, with the result that they teach another gospel 
and that is a Jesus that is unable to save. And Paul has a warning for the church saying in his letter to the Christians in Galatia, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. But many find the message of the cross unpalatable. Rather than embracing a theology of the cross, they cling instead to a theology of glory. As Paul speaks to young pastor Timothy, he urges him, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so false teachers preach a theology of glory, promising benefits of heaven right now. Benefits that God wants you to enjoy today. To be healthy, wealthy, and wise in this life. That your faith is not strong enough if you don't have those things. And you can measure your faith sometimes by how much money you give. That God is just waiting to heal you, to shower money on you, to solve all your problems right here, right now in this life. But this is a false gospel. It's tickling the ears of the listeners. It's no gospel at all. It's a teaching devoid of the cross. It's a teaching absent of any talk or understanding of sin and our condition and those consequences. It lacks a Savior who gives himself into death to take away the condemnation that should rightly be ours. A Savior who promises that because the world hated him, it will hate us also. That in this world, we will have trouble. A false gospel removes the Savior who also tells us to take heart because he has overcome the world. He has overcome it by the cross. If you've been around here in Denver at night and looked around, you're familiar with the Mount Lindo Cross. Although you may not have known its name before now, I didn't know it until yesterday. And it's the large lighted cross up there in the foothills. Do you know when it first lit? Easter night, 1964. It's been a landmark in Denver ever since. But in 1988, an atheist filed a suit to have it removed. And the county attorneys had to agree with the argument put forward in the uh, lawsuit. But there was such support for the cross. So many people writing in, contacting their senators, etc., that 
the zoning codes were changed so that it could stay, so that it could continue to light the night sky. Now we don't worship the cross. We worship the one who hung there, the one who died to give us life. But we do lift high the cross. We put it on our steeples and we light it for all to see. The cross of Jesus is a landmark. It's a focal point in God's story of salvation. When is the cross first mentioned in Scripture? It's in the Garden of Eden. Not directly, but I think you'll recognize it. He, Jesus, shall crush your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. And there it is. The cross. The means by which Jesus crushed the head of Satan took away his power to condemn, to accuse. And Jesus suffered. Jesus was wounded, struck on the heel at the cross. And so, we raise high the cross. We tell others what Jesus has done for us there. We bear on our foreheads and on our hearts the sign of the cross given to us in our baptism, the sign that shows that we are ones redeemed by Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. We have borne that cross since our baptism, where we became children of God, where we first received the forgiveness of our sins and the washing of new birth. We sometimes say that we are Good Friday and Easter people, and it's true. The cross and Easter go together. Without the cross, there is no Easter. Without Easter, the cross is foolishness. But the cross and Easter, that's the power of God and the wisdom of God for us who are being saved. Through Christ's death and resurrection, through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has been made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So we do not boast in ourselves. We do not look for another gospel. The world would like to cheapen the cross Reduce it to just a symbol that we wear around our necks, like a good luck charm. He would like to remove it from sight altogether, claiming that it stands for an intolerant religion of hate. But we know the words. We know the story that the cross tells. To us who are being saved, it tells the story of love. It tells the story of mercy, of forgiveness and life. The cross means Christ crucified for us, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's a story that we want all people to know. Lord Jesus, use us to lift your cross high and to tell the story of your great love for all people, 
that they too might have hope and forgiveness and life through you, the power and wisdom of God. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.